you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, to the 21st chapter. You need to find the beginning of the New Testament, and the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. And near the back of Matthew's Gospel, not at the very end, but at about maybe the three-quarter mark, you'll find Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of Matthew 21 this morning. It's a familiar text for this time of year, and it gives to us a familiar story. But it's my prayer that as we go to God's Word, we will get encouragement. We will uh, have God's Word for us today that we need from Matthew chapter 21. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is that? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That even as we hear your word, we would be made more and more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We would see that he is indeed our king. We would trust in him. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done. And that you have revealed it in your word. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. It is typical for churches to remember the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry at this time of year. Today is often referred to as Palm Sunday. To remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem before the Passover. As you have heard from our text this morning, the Palm Sunday reference comes from the fact that part of the crowds were cutting down branches of trees, palm trees were told in another one of the Gospels, and laying them out before our Lord as He entered into the city. Now, what will follow this event is Jesus' cleansing of the temple, His Olivet Discourse. 
the Last Supper, His betrayal by Judas, His crucifixion and death and burial. Next week we will celebrate our Lord's resurrection from the dead. But this week we focus on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. It is important for us not just as history, but for what it tells us about who Jesus is. And that is important. It's supremely important. It's even more important for us to focus on who Jesus is when we are living in a time of upheaval. In fact, I would say that one of the reasons that God sends us difficulties is to make us look away from ourselves, to be shocked out of our normal, and instead to look to Jesus. And so this morning, I would like us to see two things from our text. First, we see the pronouncement of the king in verses 1 through 7. Jesus' pronouncement that he is the king. And then second, we see the response to the king in verses 8 through 11. The pronouncement of the king, the response to the king. Let's begin then by looking at the pronouncement of the king. Now, this event, this beginning of the week, is incredibly important in Jesus' earthly ministries. All four of the Gospels focus on this last week of Jesus' ministry. Now, If you think about it, Jesus lived, according to the Scriptures, 30 years. He had a ministry of three years, and yet this one week takes up one quarter of Matthew's Gospel. One third of Mark's Gospel. One-fifth of Luke's gospel and one full half of John's gospel. It's an incredibly important week. And so Jesus has chosen this moment to come into Jerusalem. He's chosen this moment for the capstone of his ministry because it's significant. You see, now the Passover is coming. Pilgrims including Jesus and his disciples, are coming from all over Israel to come to Jerusalem. It may be that as many as 500,000 pilgrims are on their way into the city at this time to celebrate the Passover. It was the celebration of the most momentous event in all of Israel's history. It was the celebration of the greatest event in redemptive history. How God had delivered the Israelites out from Egypt by his mighty hand, by sending his plagues upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, culminating in the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. But all of the Israelites were protected. They were passed over because the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost. And so now Jesus comes to celebrate the Passover with his disciples and others, and he comes now with, from Jericho, Matthew tells us in verse 1, with a great crowd. And so, there would be disciples in the crowd that we would recognize, we would have names for, the twelve disciples that were with Jesus during his ministry. They would be following Jesus here into Jerusalem. There would be many others who would be following, and they would be of a mixed nature. 
Some would have known Jesus well. They would have followed Him for some time. Others would have been drawn to Jesus more recently, perhaps, by the novelty of what had gone on, by the things that Jesus had done, or the teachings that He had brought. We do know that at least two former blind men are in this crowd. Because right before our passage, in chapter 20, Jesus heals two blind men. And they receive their sight and they follow Jesus immediately. And so Jesus gives a command to two of his disciples. He does this in verses 2 and 3. He says, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, the language here is very clear and direct. There is no hemming or hawing. There is no gray matter that the disciples need to figure out. He says, you're to go into this town, and as soon as you get there, as soon as you come into this village, you will find a donkey and her colt. And by the way, they're going to be tied up. And you are to untie them and to bring them to me. Now, this is so detailed, where they are to go, what they are to find, exactly what they are to do. And in fact, if we piece together the additional information we're given by Mark and Luke and John, we know even more. So, for example, both Mark and Luke tell us that no one has ever sat on this colt. Mark also tells us that Jesus is merely borrowing the animal. Mark gives us the additional detail that Jesus tells the owner that he will send the animal immediately back after he is through with it. It almost seems too specific, doesn't it? What's going on here? It appears that there can only be one of two things going on. Either Jesus knows everything in advance that is going to happen. And he's speaking a prophetic command. He knows what will happen because he is God himself and he is giving a prophetic command. Now this is certainly possible. Jesus is God. He knows things that no ordinary man would know. You remember that Jesus saw Nathanael sitting under the fig tree before he called him. Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking when they didn't even give expression to it with their voice. And so what this would mean is that Jesus is giving a divine command. He knows everything in advance. Or there is a second possibility, and that is that Jesus has arranged all of this in advance. That Jesus could have arranged with the owner beforehand to tell him, I'm going to send for the animals. And the password, if you will, to know that I'm coming or I'm sending my disciples is that they will say to you, the Lord has need. Now, at first, this sounds much less impressive than Jesus predicting the future. But we have to think about the context of what is going on here. Jesus has also planned, we learn later in the Gospels, he's planned out all the details of the Last Supper in advance. He has a room planned. He has a meal planned. He has everything arranged for the Last Supper that he will have with his disciples. The supper at which Judas will dip the bread into the wine and betray Jesus. All of this will happen just a few days later. 
Why would Jesus plan out the Last Supper? Why would Jesus plan out this entrance into Jerusalem? I think the answer is simple, but is very profound. Jesus is in control of everything. Everything that will happen this week, Jesus is in control of. There are others who think they're in control. The Jewish leaders think they're in charge and they're in control. One of the things that we find out later in the Gospels is that they have decreed not to kill Jesus during the Passover week because they think it will cause a rebellion. But of course, because Jesus has planned his death during this week, what do you think happens? Who wins, if we put it that way? Of course, Jesus is in control. Satan thinks that he's in control, that he is manipulating men around him. He thinks that he has Judas under his control and that he will destroy God's kingdom and destroy God's son. The swarm of people in Jerusalem can't imagine that they are in control. They're merely coming along with the flow and the tide. Who could be in control here? Well, the answer is Jesus. Everything that he is doing is intentional. Jesus' command is specific. It's intentional. There is a reason for what he is doing. Now that brings us then to the specifics of the command. Why does Jesus ask his disciples to get the animals? Now Jesus has walked all the way from Jericho. Now, when he's this close, is he really that tired that he needs a ride to go into Jerusalem? Well, the very first thing that we should remember is that as pilgrims came into Jerusalem, they walked into the city. They did not ride. The custom of pilgrims was to walk into Jerusalem. So this is unique with Jesus riding into the city. But then we also have to remember that there is no other occasion in the Gospels in which Jesus rides. Jesus walks everywhere. Have you noticed that? From place to place, from village to village, from the very north of Israel to the very south of Israel, everywhere that Jesus goes, he walks. Now, why is Jesus riding now? There must be something about this that's significant. It's not that Jesus is tired. Matthew helps us with this. In verse 4, he says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He tells us that Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy from God's word. Now, you may have heard that Matthew's gospel is often referred to as the Jewish gospel. That is, that Matthew takes great effort to show that Jesus is the Messiah promised to the Jews. He makes reference to prophecy over and over again. Eight times in his gospel, Matthew says, this took place to fulfill. Now, that is more than double the rest of the gospels put together. John comes closest by using that turn of phrase twice. Matthew is reminding us that the actions of Jesus are rooted in the history of prophecy. Now, don't forget what we said before, that Jesus is being intentional here, that he is being specific here, that he is planning out this event. Jesus knows the prophecy. 
He's not ignorant of it. He knows that after the events of the week that are coming here, others will look back on this event and that they will see the prophecy in it. He knows that Matthew will write this chapter that you and I are reading right now. He knows that you and I will read it and we will be affected by it. Jesus is speaking to you now. He's telling you about himself. And he is calling you to believe in him. So Jesus will enter Jerusalem on a donkey and fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. Now, you may ask yourself, what is that prophecy? You may recall that four years ago we were here together at Christ Church studying the book of Zechariah and we looked at this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. It is a prophecy that Jerusalem must rejoice because her king is coming. He will come on a donkey, on a colt, Zechariah says. And he will come having righteousness and salvation. And on that day, the Lord their God will save them. That's the prophecy from Zechariah. So what Jesus is doing here as he enters Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, exactly as Zechariah has prophesied, is he is announcing that he is the king. And in doing so, he's also announcing who he is. That he is gentle, humble. You see, when we think of a king entering a city, we think of a king on a giant war horse with an army behind him, the conquering king, proud and noble. But Jesus doesn't need to show that he has power. He's humble. As Matthew quotes here in verse 5, Behold, your king is coming to you humble. Now, when you hear that word, do not think of humble as a description of Jesus being lowly. Or downtrodden. This is the same word that Matthew uses in chapter 11, verse 29, when, he, when Jesus says, Take my yoke, for I am gentle. It's the same word. Humble means to be gentle. It's the same word that Matthew uses in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 5, where Jesus says that the meek shall inherit the earth. So when Matthew uses this phrase, humble, when Zechariah uses this phrase, when Jesus applies it to himself, what you need to think of, of humility here, of being humble, of being meek, as strength under control. It's not weakness. It is Jesus being strong, but not needing to put it on display for others. There's no need to show off. Jesus knows who he is, and he longs for us to know who he is. Now, the fact that Jesus enters on a donkey is not only humble, gentle, meek, it's also, ironically, clearly kingly. There is a reason why Zechariah describes in his prophecy the king coming on a donkey. Now, we think of a donkey as being a farmer's animal, of being the country cousin, for example, of the horse. Not exactly very kingly or noble. But the donkey was actually the mount of a king. 
We see this very clearly when Solomon is being placed on the throne by David as his successor. The one of the ways that David wants everyone to know that Solomon is the king is David tells Solomon to ride his donkey. And that's what Solomon does. He comes before Israel on a donkey, mounted as a donkey. Now, it's more than just any donkey. It's David's donkey, which tells us something else, that the donkey was a sign of David's kingship. It's not a farm animal. It's the ride of a king. And the donkey was also the sign of a king who brought peace. This is where it is distinct from a horse or a war horse. You see, someone mounted on a horse brings us images of war, of conflict. But a donkey speaks of peace, of stability and strength. Jesus is fulfilling his prophecy so that we might see him who he is. The Lord. The one bringing salvation. So we would understand that what will happen later this week, when he dies, when he's buried, and when he rises. Do you see that Jesus? Now, don't look for the Jesus of your imagination. Or the Jesus that the world talks about. The Jesus that you should see is the one who died to set you free from your sins. He is the mighty king who brings hope. Will you believe in him now? He is able. And he can free you from your burden. He can deliver you from your sin, from death, and from hell. All you have to do is believe. So if Jesus is making a pronouncement of his kingship, what is the response to his pronouncement? What is the response to the king? Well, it's helpful for us to see the response because it gives us an indication of how people respond today. Because, you see, people have not fundamentally changed. I do realize we have much more technology than people did in Jesus' day. That people eat different food throughout the course of history. But essentially, we are the same. Our nature has not changed And so it also means that it is personally important for us to see the response to Jesus. Because it shows you your possible responses to Jesus. Now, there are several responses because there is a very large crowd. There are several crowds, actually. Matthew makes this clear in Verses 8 and 9, most of the crowd and the crowds, plural, that went before him and that followed him were shouting. So there is a great thronging crowd filled with different people with different ideas about Jesus. The first response to Jesus is one of misunderstanding. Now, we need to be clear here. It's not that this response is confused. We'll get to that in just a moment. This response is a response of misunderstanding. It sees Jesus in the light of our own desires rather than his pronouncement. Those who want Jesus to be the kind of king that they want, to do the things that they desire. And these are the ones who shout, Hosanna! 
Now, at first glance, that sounds very positive. Perhaps you are used to Palm Sunday celebrations in which children shout Hosanna and everyone thinks it's very cute and very positive. But actually, Hosanna means may God save us. And what the crowd is doing here is actually quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was one of the official psalms of thanksgiving for the festivals, including Passover. They were called the Hallel. And this was the culminating psalm from Psalms 113 to 118. And so there is more to this. When the crowd shouts, Hosanna, it is much less a a phrase Please, God, save me. And it's much more like a nationalistic, God save the king. It is a declaration of Israel's nationalism. Of their desire to be free from Roman rule. That they want a king, they want a Messiah that they think they've been promised. A Messiah who will come and rid them of the Gentiles. Who will establish their kingdom forever. Who will put them back in authority as they were in the days of the judges and of the kings. And so they saw Jesus on the donkey and they recognized the royal context. And so they cry out that he is the king. But you have to understand, they want him to be the king they want. Now, this should not surprise us. Jesus has dealt with this throughout all of his ministry. As a matter of fact, this marks a break in Jesus' ministry. In every previous instance where Jesus did some public display, worked a miracle, or had some remarkable teachings, it's always followed by him telling others, shh. Don't tell anyone about this. My time hasn't come. Scholars talk about this as the messianic secret. And the idea here is, is that Jesus is trying to quell efforts by the people of Israel to make him a messianic warrior king who will do their bidding. And we see this even more clearly in the parallel accounts to Matthew's gospel. So, for example, Luke has the people shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're not just shouting Hosanna, they're shouting to the king. John puts it this way, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so part of the crowd is looking for a king to do their will. To defeat the Romans and to establish Israel. They would rather have him ride in on a war horse to triumph, but they'll take what they can get. Maybe they can convince Jesus to do what he needs to do. And we can see this because later some of these same people who are shouting Hosanna later in the week will cry, crucify him. Why do they cry crucify him? Because he doesn't follow their orders. That's why they choose Barabbas. Because Barabbas does what they want. He fights politically against Rome. And Jesus is not that kind of Messiah. So let me ask you this. Are you looking for Jesus to do what you want? Do you want Jesus to give you wealth? Health? Comfort? Do you want Jesus, but you want him to serve you? 
If so, if so, you must be very careful. Because that's not who Jesus is. He is the king, not a servant. He calls on you today to follow him. Now there is a second response to Jesus, one of confusion. We see this in the city of Jerusalem in verse 10. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Now, as Jesus enters, Matthew tells us that the whole city was stirred up. Now, this should remind you of a previous description of the city that Matthew gave. It was in chapter 2 and verse 3, when the wise men came and they told Herod and the city of the birth of the king. Herod and the whole city were troubled, Matthew tells us. Now, the word in chapter 2 is different than the word here in chapter 21, but the idea is the same. Confusion has set in, unease, trouble. There are a great many people who don't know what to make of Jesus. What is he doing, they ask. Why is he doing that? Is he going to take on the Romans? If so, why isn't he being more forceful? Isn't this the man who is having conflict with the leaders? What do they think of all of this? And so you can see there's confusion reigning in many in the crowd. And so the word that Matthew uses to describe this stirring up in the city is actually the word that is used for an earthquake. He will use this word to describe the earthquake that occurs in chapter 27 after the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are literally shaken. They don't know what to do. Now, it's not clear what the result of this shaking is. That is, why do they respond with this question, who is this? Now, some people could be saying, I don't have any idea who this is. Who is this guy coming into the city? There could be others who are saying, who does this guy think he is? What is he doing riding on a donkey like a king coming into Jerusalem like this? Who does he think he is? Now, we can think about this in the context of our present circumstances. Today, how much are you actually sure of? How many articles have you read about the coronavirus? Should you wear a mask or not wear a mask? Well, it depends on what you've read. Are things getting better? Or are they getting worse? Again, you can find conflicting reports. How was all of this caused? Well, there are any number of theories. And even with access to a wealth of information, it seems that we're confused. At least for me, the more I have available to me and the more that I read, the more confused I become. That's what's happening here. The point is that they are unsure of what to do with Jesus. And with his claims. Are you in that place today? You've heard Jesus' claim. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the one who has come to bring the forgiveness of sins. You've heard it in our text today. You have heard it from this pulpit week after week after week. Sunday after Sunday. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. That's what he came to do. To save sinners. 
Do you believe that? Or are you confused? Now is the time for clarity. Now is the time to believe in Jesus. And that's exactly what the third and final response is. It is mixed in with the other responses from the crowds. There are a large number of Jesus' disciples, those who had followed him. Not just his twelve, but no, as Jesus had gone about his ministry, many great crowds followed him. And they followed him now to Jerusalem. They had seen what he had done, the miracles he performed. They had heard his teaching of the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins. And so they are shouting his praise. Many of them may have been from Galilee. That's why they would declare him to be from Galilee in verse 11. And so what they shout, what they declare, is that Jesus is the prophet. That he is the prophet who speaks for the Lord. He brings God's word of salvation to you and to me. This is what was foretold by Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. That there would come a great prophet who would bring the word of the Lord to his people. Jesus is indeed the prophet who brings truth and hope. He never misspeaks. He never lies. His name is truth. If you listen to Jesus, you will never go astray. They declare also that Jesus is the king. They say that he is the son of David. Now, we must not make the mistake of others who want their own kind of king. So we must ask, what kind of king is Jesus? Well, I think the first thing we must remember is that Jesus' reign is spiritual, not carnal. Jesus is establishing a kingdom without borders. He is establishing a kingdom without time. It is greater than any human kingdom. Jesus' reign is also eternal. There is no end to his kingdom. He has defeated sin, Satan, and death at the cross. And he is coming again to establish peace. This crowd also declares that Jesus comes in the name of the Lord. And so they point to Jesus as the Messiah, the one bringing about the will of God. Now the Bible is full of promises of the Lord to you. We can go all the way back to the first book, the book of Genesis, in chapter 3. God promises to send salvation, to bring a Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent, who would be the Savior that we need now that sin has entered into the world. Over and over again, the Bible gives us these promises that God says He will send a Savior to save you from your sins, and that Savior is Jesus. That's why... That portion of the crowd shouts, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is Jesus, the prophet, the one from Nazareth. Beloved, God knows that you cannot do it. No matter how hard you try, you cannot save yourself. But Jesus can. Palm Sunday is the declaration that Jesus is king. 
that Jesus is Savior. You can have hope today. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what you regret. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you have left undone. Jesus declares that He is enough. Will you come to Him now? Will you trust in Him? Today is the day of salvation. Come to your King, gentle, humble, but powerful and mighty, sovereign, the one who is victorious over sin, death, and hell. Come to Jesus. Let's pray.